Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about Black on the Air, hosted by the one and only, the great one, Larry Wilmore. Even though he's a Lakers fan, I still like him. I think he's talented. But he has all kinds of guests on, from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Al Franken to Bernie Sanders. You name it, they're coming on. Pop culture, politics, newsmakers. And then at, at the beginning of every podcast, Larry does a little riff about whatever is either sticking in his car or things that he's enjoying. Although he has been enjoying much lately the way the world's going. But uh, Larry will riff on anything. And then he has guests on. It's great. If you liked everything else that he's done, comedy-wise, if you love this Comedy Central show, you will love this podcast. It is a medium that he has built for it. It's called Black on the Air, hosted by Larry Wilmore. Get it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. David, you're here today. And always, really, because <laughs> we've known each other since we were 14 years old. Has it been that long? Yeah. And I think we didn't know this, but when, when we met at that age and, you know, spent the majority of our world history class making wrestling jokes, that we were contractually obligated at some future <laughs> day to do a podcast together. If we had known what podcasts were in 1992, <laughs> I think it would have been the only possible endpoint to that relationship. We have been doing a really bad podcast for our whole lives, you might we, say. We have. We have. Over uh, video games, over professional wrestling pay-per-views, over beers in Brooklyn. Yeah, Relationships. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's been an ongoing podcast with 35 listeners for most of the time <laughs> we've known each other. And often just two. Yeah. This is the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network. There are plenty of podcasts on the Ringer Network, but this one is the most sporadic. This is the Press Box. I'm Brian Curtis, editor at Large of the Ringer, co-hosting today, Ringer Art Director, Masked Man Show host, and as he put it in my senior yearbook, my tag team partner in the squared circle of life. Wow. David Shoemaker. Three things we want to talk about today. Topic one, how Donald Trump turned otherwise apolitical sports announcers into political polemicists, a.k.a. how Terry Bradshaw got woke. <laughs> Topic number two is Megyn Kelly's new talk show and her Stephen Colbert problem. And finally, topic three, the end of the reality show that's close to our hearts, geographically speaking, Chip and Joanna's Fixer Upper on oh, HGTV. Yes. I'm excited, man. Let's get into it. All right, let's start with Donald Trump, because what conversation, what podcast across America does not start with Donald Trump? It is so easy to talk about this administration and say, I couldn't have imagined X <laughs> two years ago. Right. But David, God damn it. I could not have imagined Terry Bradshaw, Chris Collinsworth, Rich Eisen and Rex Ryan directly addressing the president of the United States on NFL pregame shows. What did you make of that on Sunday? It was... Uh, it was a lot to take in. I'll say that. Right. I mean, we were all, I think, on some level prepared for the amount of on field protest that we were going to see on Sunday. Uh, as you alluded to, it was a little bit shocking to see. Uh, it, it was it was shocking to hear a lot of these guys, you know, come out uh, with with varying degrees of, of defiance in their voice and uh, and and, you know, verbally protest uh, the president. Um, there did feel like there was a little bit of. Uh, formality to some of them, I guess I'll say. Like this was a necessary, you know, get, eat your vegetables, get this out of the way before we can proceed with the with a regularly scheduled program. We have to say this and then we can get on with the fun. Yeah. And a little bit formal. I know on ESPN they do this occasionally. I'm not sure if they did this on the pregame shows, but when they have a politically tricky segment, they tape it in advance mm -hmm. because you want to make sure that you get those words out okay. Sure. That you don't step in it. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if some of that happened here. 
where it's like, let's do a take. Let's uh, let you go in on Trump, Mr. Bradshaw, and see how this sounds. Uh, and then we'll come back and do it for, you know, and then and then that that will air and we'll just have that as our segment. I'm sure it was practice. I mean, Howie Long uh, followed up uh, what Bradshaw said, I think, immediately on the show and with with basically a verbatim, I mean, recitation of what he said on a separate show, too. I mean, this is this is it's tricky. It's tricky material. I don't fault him for that. But this is a you know, this uh, and not to, you know, rag on on Howie Long, who seems to be kind of who seemed emotionally at least to be the most one of the most sincere people that talked about it. But, it you know, it, it was, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a bit in a lot of ways. It's, it was rehearsed. So these guys, these shows are, <laughs> it's safe to say, pretty apolitical <laughs> pregame show. Mm. And one of the funny things about Trump to me is just him pushing people who do not want to talk about politics, who do not want to be political actors into that field, right? Jamel Hill is happy to talk about politics, sure. right? Maybe she did not expect to be doing it quite on this scale, but she's happy to do it. Chris Collinsworth does not want to talk about it. Chris Collinsworth on week one did not want to talk about the Zeke Elliott thing, which was very germane to the football <laughs> game being played on the field. Yeah. Much less talk about present, but here he is in his own way, demanding an apology from the president on NBC. What did you think of that? This was the one where the necessity or the feeling that it was necessary to, to say something really felt the most obvious because he he the framing that he came forward with was it felt like he was about he was striking the right tone. But the content of his statement was just completely, completely in the wrong direction. Yeah, he said he thought if the players just went to the White House and Trump listened to them and listened to the things they cared about, a.k.a. police violence, white supremacy, those kinds of things. Right that they would come to some common ground, which right. I just don't believe is the case at all. I don't think that I don't think that that's I don't think the problem is we're, that Trump is not listening to the players. No, I mean, obviously not. And it, and it actually evokes the sort of like Internet troll person persona who, who who insists that like the worst thing about Colin Kaepernick's original protest was that he didn't even know what he was making, what he was kneeling for. Right. It's sure. just like you're, you think you're starting a conversation. Well, why don't but like you don't even you know, we don't even know what the what the point is. Well, it's not hard to figure out what the point is. I mean, half of these people that, w that we're talking about today knew exactly what the point was. But to say that, like, people needed to go explain the problem to Donald Trump. It's like, no, the, I mean, the problem should be should be there for him to to understand pretty straightforwardly. And this is the unique problem of Trump for a lot of media people. We can't just come together. We can't just be unified. We can't just talk to each other. Right. <laughs> the problem is people are talking and they're saying really offensive stuff. Yeah. You know, so that that's actually not it. I thought Bradshaw's was was pretty good. Yeah, you Bradshaw's know? was great. And again, I'm I'm not I'm gonna I'm we're grading these guys by impossible standards, right? They're not. They don't want to be doing this. They're, they're but they're but they're doing their best. Right. Bradshaw's was kind of amazing where he said, I'm not sure the president understands free speech rights and <laughs> told him he should concentrate on North Korean health care. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of a shot there at the end. Well, I think that's something that we can all agree on. Even Trump supporters, you know, will say that they they uh, would prefer he not be tweeting with the, with the, the, the sorts of things and the and the, the degree to which he is. Um, but you talk about them, you know, judging them by an unrealistic standard. I mean, it's sort of the, the standard is the is the Shannon Sharp standard at this point. Right. That was amazing. I'm disappointed. And I'm and I'm and I'm unimpressed. I'm disappointed, Skip and Joy, because this is the tipping point of the seven thousand five hundred and thirty seven things that President Trump has said in the last 50 years. Him calling an NFL player an SOB is what brought the NFL, the owners, and its players together. 
And while some might be moved by the conscience of these NFL owners, it wasn't their conscience that moved them. It was the cash. Now, and, that was on Monday. Right. So the smoke had cleared a little bit and we'd kind of seen what had happened. These people are talking about something that hadn't happened yet on right. Sunday, the protests anyway. And then all of a sudden you have these protests. You have Daniel Snyder and Jerry, <laughs> later Jerry that night, Jerry Jones locked arms with the players and winked at the camera. Yeah. And Shannon Sharp, you know, who is, I think, in a lot of people's mind, he is the other guy with Skip Bayless. Of right. He is a big that's not fair. He's a big TV star and all that stuff on his own. But he comes in and says, no, 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 this. Let me tell you why the owners were standing down there. They were worried that their product was threatened. Yep. They were worried that the president was going to do something that was going to take money away from them. Yeah. And yeah, that was that was really clarifying and, and that was great. And it was like eight minutes long. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, Skip just got out of the way and let him go. And it was one. I mean, it was it was a really, I mean, just impressive, brilliant uh, speech that I mean, that every time I thought he was going to lose the train, he just like he just jumped back in. He had this great list where he said, here are all the things that didn't shock NFL owners. <laughs> yeah. But what but that night in Ala, last Thursday night in Alabama or excuse me, Friday night in Alabama was what really put them over the top. Right. It was it was Colin Kaepernick. It was not the Access Hollywood tape. It was not what he said about Mexican immigrants. It was not what he said about Muslims and Gold Star families, et cetera, et cetera. That was the moment. Right. And yeah, and that really nicely pointed out <laughs> this whole, you know, really clarified it because it's like this is what got those guys onto the field. Yeah. I mean, and part part of his, you know, underlying message was that the the movement that Colin Kaepernick started had been co-opted now by the fact that the owners are down there kneeling, too. And I think that, you know, I don't I don't want to use the term, uh, you know, as too much of a wedge. But that's I think what we're saying with a lot of the, you know, uh, middle-aged white sportscasters that have that are that were in the position of making these political statements this week is that you know when the movement envelops them when it's necessary for the, for those people to comment then uh, I think you know you got to wonder whether or not the 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 purpose of the movement has just been lost to history at this point <laughs> right and they're going to come in they're going to come in most of them in defense of free speech sure which is important mm -hmm. it's not exactly what. Colin Kaepernick was talking about, but it is a certainly <laughs> a related story in yes. this. They are, I think it's fair to say all of them uh, are going to come in in defense of the NFL mm -hmm. because what is network television when it shows games other than the stewards of the NFL? Sure. That's what those guys are in business with the NFL. Well, I mean, it would have been it would have been different if Roger Goodell had come out and said, like, yes, sir, Mr. President, I totally agree. You know, and then they would have been in the position of presumably going, Ooh, you know, nose to nose one. with the NFL. Um, but that didn't happen, obviously. Um, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about the story, I mean, uh, you know, about the fallout to Trump's comments was how much in lockstep every every, you know, wealthy old man in the NFL was in, in reaction to it. And I think Shannon Sharp was exactly right. You know, I mean, it, it, this it's not an issue of free speech or of of, uh, you know, any sort of civil rights. It's a it's a matter of the bottom line. Yeah. And getting back to what we were, what Colin Kaepernick was trying to say yeah. all these many months ago. Speaking of middle-aged white guys, Dale Hansen. Oh, yeah. A sportscaster in Dallas, Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth. Who we grew up with. Our ancestral home. Yeah. People don't know. He's 69 years old. He is this survivor of the Anchorman era of local news. Mm -hmm. This towering figure in Dallas. I mean, just a guy who, when we were growing up, was not only big on television, but like stories about him were big. His salary, what he was doing. Yeah. You know, his 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 place there. He comes out with this 
commentary, he calls them unplugged, <laughs> on Monday night right before the Cowboys play. Right. Six thirty of news, I believe, in Dallas. My mom actually tipped me off to this. My mom, thankfully, is uh, helping shape my media diet. And it was unbelievable. And it was two nutrient rich minutes about the anthem and about the protests and about Trump that aired on the local news in Dallas. I mean, just that is remarkable. This isn't Dale Hansen's uh, first mic drop moment. He he's he's made several <laughs> appearances in our various Twitter feeds over the past year or so. Um, but he's I mean, this is this is. I mean, he's and he's never incoherent. I mean, he's always he's always he's very, very good at this. Uh, and this was this was my favorite of these Dale Hansen moments, though. He was he, it was it it felt like, um, you know, the, the just just the perfect he was the perfect voice, weirdly, for that for, you know, the, the statement that he was making. Yeah. And I you just sort of wanted something very old fashioned about it. I'm just going to look at the camera and just talk about this. I've got something to say. Mm -hmm. uh, but you realize, like. Oh, so few people even on cable really have the talent to pull that off. Uh, you know, like, you know, you can remember some Keith Olbermann, you know, kind of special comments and stuff like that. But do a tight two minute version of that. They can run again on your local newscast, yeah. I must emphasize, but also, you know, kick ass in its way. It, it was very pastorly. Or very, I mean, and, and mm. that and that I think speaks to the market or, or maybe it's, you know, more akin to a Sunday school teacher. But but it, but the fact that he was speaking unopposed, it wasn't part of a conversation. It was a monologue. It really it really evoked. Uh, you know, a certain uh, as as the son of a pastor, as, you know, a certain sort of uh, big city southern pastor, where you can say things that might not be your congregation's uh, instinct, but if you make the case coherently, and you make and and if the the underlying argument is you know a more full and open heart, you know, you can really you can really change minds, and I feel like that's a lot of what Dale did. Fascinating thing to me about Dale, who I wrote about when we were at Grayland, was that he has joined two aesthetically completely different institutions local news mm -hmm. right which is about a lost cat in a tree <laughs> and twitter <laughs> which is the snarkiest you know universe imaginable and he has found the bridge between these two things sure like that i tweeted that out that after my mom tipped me off to it i was like 900 retweets just of the dale thing and then other people did the same thing it was on deadspin it was one of the most popular stories on deadspin like he has figured out how to get between these two worlds. That's amazing. Yeah. Who, who else in the, who else has done that? Well, it's amazing. It's amazing. But like I said, this is not the first one of these it has been passed around the internet, but it's still, the headline is still Dallas anchor. It's not Dale Hansen yet <laughs> after uh, he's 69 years old. I he's a legend. Yeah. Don't we know who Dale Hansen is? Don't we as a country now know who he is? I, I should hope so. He deserves it. He deserves a bigger platform than the one he's been given. He was on him. Ellen after the Michael Sam thing. No, I think it's finally time to put him into the, into the, into the two name pantheon. We, we know who Dallas Dale Hansen is everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we don't do a little segment here we call the overworked Twitter joke of the week, David. Oh, gosh, I yes. Hear, I come not to shame people. I come to make a point that about Twitter that there are these moments where there is an obvious joke right there. It's just right there and everybody's going to make it. You're sitting on Twitter and you're like, do I make the obvious joke because I could maybe make it first or to prove that I'm thinking that? Or do I just let it go by and because I know someone else has already made it? Now, this as a writer is something that we that you and I both struggle with. Pitch a piece. Is it possible that someone's already pitched this piece, already yes. written this piece on Twitter? The immediacy of it makes it makes it a it's a split second decision. Do you do a quick search? Yeah, just make sure this. Joke By the is time you search, someone is going to take your joke, though, right? So you got to just go out with it. Couple of I got a couple runner ups from this week, and then a really a clear winner. This is number the the runner up overworked Twitter joke of the week 
This is after the NCAA scandals began <laughs> at Louisville. Uh, when Rick Pitino initially sent out that statement, this is before he was formally let go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Pitino gave a statement about, you know, saying I had no idea this was going on. This was the work of bad actors. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say live look at Rick Pitino and then tweet a clip of Major Strasser from Casablanca <laughs> saying, I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling going on. That was a good joke a lot of people made. Uh, another runner up was after the carnage happened to Louisville uh, to say that Bobby Petrino was now the most stable part of the Louisville <laughs> athletic department. That was kind of a that was a good one, right? It's funny because it's true. But number one, Twitter gave a bunch of users the option to go to 280 characters. Oh, we yeah. We've talked about nothing on Twitter since then. Yes. But in the immediate moments after that announcement, if you tweeted, here's why Twitter is wrong to expand character <laughs> limits, part one of 125, <laughs> boom, that was amazing. Congratulations. You just made the same joke as everyone else. Who says monoculture is dead? We, we say we split off. Well, maybe we all made the same joke. And again, I, I don't want to I don't want to criticize. It was right there. If nobody had Some made of that, my favorite writers just <laughs> all at the same time. If nobody had made that joke, we would have been worse for worse off for it. But I, thankfully, I someone did. Many I chuckled. Someone, yeah. I chuckled. And then I kind of chuckled again when I saw the second and third time. <laughs> and fourth and fifth and sixth. All right, David, more from the press box. But first, a quick break. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringers Gambling Podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, and you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta, and they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's Make Believe Casino, where Sal makes up props on, on all kinds of things, sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out. Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Topic number two, David, is Megan Kelly. On Monday, Megan started her long-awaited, is that the right word? Long gestating? I don't know if anybody was awaiting this. Morning show on NBC. You might remember Kelly as the contentious Fox News host who went toe-to-toe with Donald Trump. Well, now she's something else. She's Oprah. She's she's a day she's Rosie. What is she? Oh, exactly. Man. Is she married to Fiera? I don't know what she is. <laughs> it's a it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, long the 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 gestation period is is an interesting part of this because from the moment NBC sti- signed her away from Fox News, there were you know, we experience this as people who engage in, you know, meta media criticism as the sort of like we see like the stages of the cross of various media profiles. Right. There is the there's the big Megyn Kelly profile when she's a free agent. There's the big profile or the, the big, you know, Hollywood reporter piece or whatever. When she signs, there's various Vanity Fair and and, you know, big glossy magazine pieces along the way. Now we're finally there. Right. I mean, she had her Sunday night show that was sort of, you know, killed preemptively. But now we're at the place where they all dreamed she would be hosting the nine o'clock hour of the Today Show. Um, and well, I mean, we it's just started, but the an, initial reviews have not been particularly glowing. Yeah. When I said that Stephen Colbert problem earlier, what I was talking about was that it's this weird phenomenon that happens in the media. Mm-hmm. Somebody's really good at something. And then you hire them and say, I know I want you to do something totally different. So Stephen Colbert becomes really famous by doing this. 
buffoonish right-wing character. And then you say, I want you to be kind of like a general interest (laughs) talk show host and not really talk about politics all that much, except in a kind of nice bipartisan way. Of course, as soon as Stephen Colbert got rid of that, he went back to being popular. Yeah. Which he was before. Sure. And Megyn Kelly, I, uh, let's can we enjoy a few moments in in the nonpartisan and nonpartisaning of Megyn Kelly here? For this is her to People Magazine. I'm not a political animal, and I never have been. The subject was not true to my soul. Really, on all those all those Fox News segments about the Black Panthers it's, it and stuff, like she you were was not very, interested in politics. Yeah, it seemed like it was very close to her soul. Not not into that. Uh, in an interview with Elle, when she was asked about Jamel Hill, she got up and threatened. To leave the interview, such as I'm not a journalism expert, was one of her lines from there. And then on the very first episode of the new Megyn Kelly NBC show, she said, we'll be dissecting the latest tweet from Donald Trump. Oh, wait, we're not going to be doing that. The truth is I'm kind of done with politics for now. So can you just be done? Can you just stop? Not in 2017. I mean, you can't separate politics from anything right now right especially something like the today show where they will interview political candidates you know i mean they will interview they, they will touch on i mean how can how can you talk about how can you how can you not talk about what's going on in the nfl on the today show right but that she's going to be this the idea that she would be at the oasis from that is just <laughs> sort of mind-boggling right yeah it's both a misread of the media moment where everybody who everybody who's big right now is getting is getting big because they're engaging with politics right. in one way or another. But yeah, but also this idea that she's going to be kind of the like slightly zany morning show host. Yeah, and yeah, to, exactly. To take your to your your Colbert point, I mean that I so many people have have been given this perch on the Today Show, not the same one, but there've been any number of Today Show co-hosts that have that have uh, you know, been been welcomed with pomp and circumstance and then like, you know, shown the door in pretty short order. The one thing I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into the backstage politics of, you know, NBC's morning programming. But the one thing that's clear is that it's not for everybody, even if you're sure that somebody's the right fit. Uh, it's it's you know, it, it's not a, it's not a simple equation. And so to to bring her in, to bring in Megyn Kelly and just assume that she's going to be that this is the right position for it. I mean, despite the fact that she's never done anything like this, it's pretty it's a it's a pretty wild calculation. Absolutely. Uh, I think that came home for me when I saw her in a bit riding a tandem bicycle with Al Roker to NBC's headquarters. Yeah. The 30 Rock. Like that didn't <laughs> I don't know why that was weird, but that just seemed that seemed that seemed sort of out of character to, to take. Yeah, to take the most like the silliest reach of the of the, you know the silliest aspects of the Today Show and to throw her in you know just kind of throw her in the deep end. I mean, I guess you you do you have to you you have to you know sort of make her feel like she's a part of that the fabric of that. But it but it was it was very very strange. So one of the interesting things too is as she's done a couple of shows now, they've been I would say mostly panned by America's TV critics. But they've also had these awkward moments where you sort of remember that this person is not working in this milieu. There was one yesterday, uh, which would be Thursday, where she had Robert Redford and Jane Fonda on. And she asked Jane Fonda about having plastic surgery. But but you look amazing. Do you you, have you. Why did you say I read that you said you felt you're not proud to admit that you've had work done? Why not? We really want to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Which I guess points for honesty. But, you know, Jane Fonda kind of bristled at it and said, wait, 
Why are you asking me about this? I mean, talking about someone who's out of their milieu. I mean, it's she's coming from a world where you're graded on. I mean, at this point, especially after the last presidential campaign, you're graded on whether or not you double and triple down on questions when you're when the person you're interviewing is is refusing to to answer in the way that you want. Now she's in a world where you got to know when to just stop asking the question. And usually that's like in in this case, that would have been midway through asking it the first time. (laughs) But but to kind of like to 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 hammer on that point of all things um, when they're in like a, you know, a presumably like a very sh- a brief segment to promote a movie is just sort of insane. Yeah. It's like another way to say what you said was that you're in a world where giving offense is what you get complimented for. And right. here's where you get graded on not offending people. Yeah. Like being really nice to the movie stars who are sitting across from you. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, as we're talking about this, I mean, the, it, so I mean, at the at the expense of of self awareness, you know, the, the, I guess we re, I've read all of these reviews about Megyn Kelly, and the, you know, the, I mean, the question that that I, that keeps being begged is like whether it's even worth dissecting this early on. Is she? Go, I mean, she's either going to find her footing in the way that Colbert did, or at some point, there's going to be a much more interesting flame out conversation to have, right? <laughs> right. Um, but but the, but the Washington Post. I mean, it's it's been it's that was uh, a brutal review. The Hank Washington Stuver in the Washington Post. Yeah, and and uh, uh, Doreen St. Felix and the in New York, in the New Yorker. I mean, there's just like review after review has just been sort of crazy. And as I, I mentioned to you before we went on the air, when I was like googling to make sure I had read all the reviews on the first, if you just Google Megyn Kelly, and the, one of the two of the first things that come up or are a uh, variety piece from June and a Vanity Fair piece from back in March that are just sort of like dissecting the problem that is to come. And those things are still sitting there as if they're like you know relevant information. Yeah. By the way, that's a really tricky thing. Morning television. Yeah. Um, not just we we call this the Today Show, but really it's kind of a freestanding talk show. Mm-hmm. And there is this graveyard of talented people who have gone <laughs> into that space and just been really, really bad. Megan Mullally, who was one of her uh, guests on the first show, right. tried that. Caroline Ray. I don't know if you remember that after after Rosie O'Donnell left. Yeah. Katie Couric. Uh, tried that. Jane Pauley, almost everybody who has been on the Today Show has also tried a standalone talk show. Right. Um, it's really hard. And I don't know, you know, like people like Rosie O'Donnell and Ellen Jenner are good at it. Um, I think just because they own the bit and it feels that, you know, like when Ellen is dancing with her guests, you believe that Ellen wants to be dancing with her guests. She's yes. not being forced to do this yeah. by the conventions or Rosie is. Back in the day, was belting out show tunes. Well, yeah. I, I, also, the stakes are are lower. You know, I mean, if if Ellen's show had 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 cratered in the first season, it wouldn't have been the end of Ellen's career. It would have just been, you know, a oh, daytime that show work. that didn't work. But we're talking about the Today Show, which has this aura about it, right? It's like every time there's there we talked about Colbert. Every time they're replacing guests for the late night shows, it doesn't matter that that like one percent of the people who were watching these shows twenty years ago are watching now, right? I mean, the the uh, the Vanity Fair piece that I that I mentioned earlier um, talks about how morning morning news, the morning TV program is a is a you know dinosaur, but it's still limping along, and uh, and it, it's it just feels like the stakes are so high for Megyn Kelly getting an hour of the Today Show, despite the fact that you know, do we even care about this genre anymore? I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a weird it's a weird part of the media landscape. She's making all this money, Matt Lauer. She's making what fifteen million or something. Matt Lauer, twenty five million for a show that fewer and fewer people watch are watching. But you know, we're we're talking about it, so I guess that's something. I wanted to do a little thought experiment, David, where I wanted to try to misuse your talents <laughs> as a journalist. 
Okay, this will be fun. So here are some jobs. Let's 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 agree that you're a really really talented writer, rank and tour, whatever you want to say. Right? How could we misuse your talents the best <laughs> in the best possible way? Just a couple I came up with. One would be immigration policy reporter. <laughs> You'd be good at that. Uh, okay, yeah. You can't do profiles. I'm just I just want pol- details of policy. J- here. Yeah, just the nuts and bolts. No, yeah. I would not be very good at that. Uh, the ghost historian on the next volume of the Bill O'Reilly killing series of books. Uh, weirdly because of previous employment, I'm a little bit too close to that to comment, but yeah, I would be very, very, I would be very bad at that. Yeah. And finally, the other one sports impressionist build as the next Frank Caliendo. How would you do with that? I would do really bad. And as evidence, that was me just doing my, my, uh, my, my Troy Aikman impression. Oh, just then. Was, <laughs> you can't tell it all. Oh, wow. I wonder who caught that. We take the worst house in the best neighborhood and we turn it into our client's dream home. Are y'all ready to see your fixer upper? Topic number three, David. On Tuesday, the red state power couple Chip and Joanna Gaines stars the HGTV powerhouse fixer upper. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Announced they are ending the show after its fifth season. Like LeBron James, they only talk on their own through their own media. Uh, And this is what they said. Our plan is to take this time to shore up and strengthen the spots that are weak, rest the places that are tired and give lots of love and attention to both our family and our business. Now, HGTV is kind of this Marvel universe of home repair. (laughs) Yes. Can you explain and to the listeners out there what made Chip and Joanna stand out? Uh, I mean, I, I can speak from from my own personal opinion. Uh, I mean, I can tell well, that's, you that the, that's why I brought the, you on. The, the expanded shoemaker family, uh, and, and from my parents, my you know extended family, my sister, all of us are completely enthralled. Part of it for us was the Waco, Texas connection. I'm a Baylor University graduate, uh, as I as I not so often say. Um, and my sister actually works there. So, but, you know, my mom likes it, it for her. It's, I think, a little bit of a look in on on our lives in a very, you know, abstract way. Um, but what makes the show work is that as compared to all of the other HGTV shows, which I watch, I'm not they're not casting aspersions, but those shows are filled with sort of uh, uh, like automatons, like, you know, uh, decorators that just seem to be pieced together from like pages like they, they just took actual issues of Martha Stewart living and pasted them into a golem. Um, but these are the Chip and Joanna are real humans. You know, they're very they're, they're they are relatable. They're sweet and wonderful. Um, but they somehow mastered the art of making it seem like the camera is actually just picking up uh, real life interaction in a way that uh, in a way that not, these shows don't often do. To the two of us who grew up in Texas, mm-hmm. they are stored of the red straight state dream, aren't they? Oh, yeah. They work in the city, but they live on the farm. <laughs> Exactly. They are huge uh, professionals, big time on television, but they have plenty of time to devote to their wife and kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really I'm amazed. And I just having grown up in Texas. I just there's certain things about their aesthetic that just just reach out to me. Oh, yeah. And I think one of them is when Joanna does a kitchen and she does the one word sign in oh the kitchen. Gosh, Remember yes. that from childhood? The one word sign, the chalkboard with love written on it and cur- in like the, in a yes. cursive font. Strangely. Yeah. It's a, it's I saw one the other day that just said vintage. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the, that's kind of the ecumenical version of, you know, the one, right? It's like, yeah, all these things, word. all these things are for sale at the Magnolia market store online. Um, so 
I wanted. I watched a couple of episodes just to refresh myself. Sure. I've watched. I wouldn't say I've watched Fixer Upper mostly on planes. Mm-hmm. When you're kind of a captive audience, you know, have a couple of hours to kill. I've watched it on planes and in living rooms and on my phone while I'm waiting in line. Every every which way. Tell me if this is not how a typical episode goes. Usually, we begin on the farm, and they're feeding one of the animals with their kids. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a calf named Licorice. <laughs> an actual example. Yeah. Then they're driving in the car, and Chip makes a lot of dad jokes. Yes. Just goes in and Joanna kind of no sells the jokes. Yes. Just not laughing at all. Yeah. Then, then, then there's the regular reality show stuff. Three houses, pick a house, renovate the house. At some moment, chip from across the renovated house. Like, Joe, check this out. Yes. And they'll find like a hidden chimney or something like that. <laughs> or a glass, problem. a message in a bottle in one episode. Yeah. There's always some treasure to be found. Then at some point they'll talk about what's really rewarding about the whole process. Yes. It's a little bit of a spiritual aspect. It's rewarding about the, the process, the jobs, the way they get to spend time with their family and the, and the sacrifices they make. Yeah. And then at the end, the kids, just before the reveal, the kids will come over and do something really incidental, like put the fruit in the bowl on mm-hmm. the table, maybe arrange the flowers, yeah. something like that. And then their cool thing was they had like a photo of the old house that would literally come apart. Yeah. And the new house would be revealed. Yes. And they would, and they say, I'd love to show you the kitchen. Yeah. I'd love to show you the master suite. There's a lot of little things in these home renovation reality shows. And, and, you know, the reveal of the house by wheel, by pulling apart the old picture is, it was a very minor innovation on an existing trope. But that's, that's, that's what one of the things that makes Fixer Upper so good is they found just little twists on all of these home reno tropes and made them just a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more lived in, you might say, despite the fact that some of the houses look, sort of very modern country antiseptic. Absolutely. Uh, the one thing you didn't touch on when you're talking about the sort of Texas ideal of this, that this family uh, conveys is the, the dream of the small business Ooh, yes. becoming the big business sort of, you know? Uh, and, you know, this started off as a, I mean, obviously it was a side project for both of them. Um, I can say that my sister lives in a very early Joanna Gaines uh, decorated home. Not really? a not a tear down renovation, but she but the, you know she did some design work with the, for the previous owner. Or that's just the legend of the house. Who knows? I'm sure that's half of Waco right now. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it, it was a it was a small time operation uh, that that grew. Chip bought out his partners famously like the two weeks before the show started. Um, and this and and took a, you know, a construction business and made it into this Magnolia empire. Who knows why they're shutting down the show after the season? It's taken. I mean, but it does. Sh- it, it shows you how far this show has come in the national consciousness that like, you know, two, three seasons ago, this was an this is a conversation like the only time I ever heard about Fixer Upper when I, was when I was talking to my mom on the phone. You know, I mean, the, the most I mean, there were. You know, there were blogs that followed it, but I mean, that, that touched on Fixer Upper. But most of those blogs were like Christian blogs that said that Joanna Gaines was not being a good housewife for doing all the work that she was doing. You know, this is the level of attention it was getting back then. Now we're in a world where they announced the show's ending and People Magazine has to put up a post about it. I mean, just like every single every magazine has touched on has touched on the fact that this uh, this show is shutting down. And, um, you know, I'm sure this is not the last that we'll hear of the Gaines family. When you talk about them becoming an empire, the mom and pop business becoming an empire, mm-hmm. is this the moment to mention that Chip just published a book called Capital Gains? <laughs> yeah. Oh, what man. a pun. Yeah, it is. It's a, I mean, listen, there's always going to be puns in this world. And also now in Waco has become this thing to yeah. go to. Like my mother-in-law who lives in California is the most modern California woman you can imagine wants to go to Waco, Texas yeah. to shop in the Magnolia Empire. I drove 
by there not long ago, and the line was blocks and blocks and blocks long to get into this stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, this is Waco, Texas is not a not a small town. I mean, not as small as maybe sometimes it seems on TV. But uh, the idea that you would ever wait in a line in Waco, Texas is for just anything. is insane. For I mean, re, I mean, honestly, you don't wait. You don't have to wait into a line to go see a college football game. I mean, there's there's no there's no reason to wait into a line. The, the way that they have taken over the city and not just with their enterprises, but also the ancillary stuff, the uh, the the fixer upper uh, house tours. I mean, there are people driving people around the city to show so they can look in real life at the houses that have been remodeled. You know, I mean, there's all of this. All I mean, it is it has changed Waco. And another one of the weird online things that happened a little bit outside of the the radar of the big press was when they are trying to buy the silos when they're you know where they have the market now. There was a lot of like the Waco coverage was about the gains going to war with the with the city government a lot of the time. Um, that's, you know, a little bit less interesting on a national scale, but I mean, they have, they have just taken over Waco, Texas. I hope, you know, and I think that the city of Waco hopes that with the ending of the show, they don't, you know, they don't just leave town. I assume, I assume it'll keep, I assume they'll keep going. Uh, the market there is, is like you said, very, very like quite a tourist destination. Yeah. I used to think that for 60 and 70 year old moms, Charleston and Savannah was Mecca and Medina. Oh yes. And now Waco is, has been added to that list. It is really the place to go. You want to hang out with these people. You want to see their stuff. There's like a cupcake shop or a bakery yeah. that they have that's big. Too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They bought the They bought the famous Elite Cafe. I haven't really followed up on that story and changed the name, which was really sad. That's a Waco institution for those not familiar. One of the few Waco institutions out there. Yeah. There was also a good piece in the um, in New York Magazine this week by Caitlin Flanagan. Oh, yeah. Talked about how what, one funny thing about this when she, she did a very good job going through all the archetypes if not stereotypes of all these shows which is the husband is always swinging a sledgehammer and Mm -hmm. the wife is always coming in to design the house after it's over but one thing she talked about was that flipping homes is actually a really bad (laughs) really bad tough business to be in yes um that's something that maybe you know is not a great idea but we have now put this on such a pedestal that like a couple is going to do this like this is our job and we're going to make a fortune doing this and it's going to be kind of a gamble but this is going to be awesome. And Chip and Joanna are really responsible for part of that, I think, you know, don't you? Yeah, two things. One, I mean, listen, the home renovation show model overall has sort of replaced the the kind of treacly family sitcom in a lot of ways in a lot of people's lives. You know, it's the inciting incident is the buying of the house or the, you know, the taking on of the project. And you just follow the narrative arc all the way to the big reveal at the end and everybody hugging just like on, you know, Full House back in the day. Um, and just like on Full House, they have to keep introducing more and more children. And they, actually for, for Fixer Upper, it's more and more farm animals just to sort of like propel the <laughs> plot forward uh, in a really unnecessary way. But the other thing is, I mean, you can't just, you, you, HGTV has tried to, not, not only is this is Fixer Upper based on a, you know, a tradition of home reno shows, but HGTV has tried to replicate Fixer Upper 15 times since the show went on the air. I mean, some of them are still on and some of them, you know, were, were disposed of on a Saturday evening on HGTV. It, the the model isn't what works. It's Chip and Joanna are what works, right? I mean, it's their relationship that just comes through the screen. And uh, and I think you've got to give them all the credit in the world for that. It's the dad humor. It really is. That's it what really it's is. like. It's like a sitcom, right? It's the dad humor and it's the sort of shamelessness of their relationship. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, it's the way that he can tell the jokes without feeling like, you know, he, he they feel like they're being fully themselves, even though they're clearly putting on a show. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
they just feel like they're mildly interesting. They're they're mildly interesting to start, and they're not overplaying their hand, right? That's they're happy to be that. Just a nice, loving, you know, happy couple. Uh, yeah. If you could, if you could quantify, if you could quantify that sort of on-screen charisma, they certainly have something. Before we drop the subject, though, I would just want to know, want you to know, I'm looking at. Uh, the Magnolia Market online store right now, and in the sales section, amongst things like metal house planters and uh, and rose stems, you can buy script wall expressions ranging from sixteen dollars and thirty one cents up to thirty two dollars on sale right now. If you want to have a, if you want to have the word home in cursive <laughs> and in cursive metal on your kitchen wall, uh, Brian, that's available for you right now. Uh, I think we need to add that to the to the uh, press box studio here at Ringer headquarters. <laughs> we do. There's also a hanging circular chalkboard that says "Go the extra mile" and then an arrow. Wow, yeah. David. To transition here, I believe we've gone the extra mile today. <laughs> I think so. Thank you for coming to do this. We're gonna do. We're gonna do more of these. Together. I hope so, man. This has been a lot of fun. It has. Next uh, week, we're gonna talk about Cletus the Fox, uh, the Fox football <laughs> robot, and his political statement and his brave statement about, <laughs> about healthcare in the United States of America. I'm Brian. He's David. Thanks for joining us uh, on the Press Box and listen to all the other stuff on the Ringer Podcast Network. <laughs>